John is a friend uh, to me, and he's a friend to this church as well. And every year we look forward to having John come back with us and give us a special word. He has a special word for this service, just like he did in the last service that touched our hearts and our lives. So in anticipation of what God's going to speak to you, will you give a real CFAM welcome to John as he comes to minister to us today? God bless you, friend. All right. Good morning, Crossroads. I don't think you heard that. Good morning, Crossroads. Good morning. All right. That's better. So good to be back with you again here. Craig is a special friend, and I especially appreciate his invitation each year to come back and share this pulpit. A lot of preachers are pretty jealous of their pulpits, and I appreciate the fact that he's willing to invite me to come and for you as a congregation to support our ongoing ministry. You know what really impressed me in the early service and this service as well? All these teenagers down here on the front row. That's, uh, that's great. That's a good thing. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. And that's a sign of a healthy church in and of itself. Well, I want us to dig right in this morning because uh, I have a text that God laid on my heart actually a number of weeks ago in preparation for today. And it seems so very appropriate. It's found in the book of Psalms, chapter 42, and verse 5. You're familiar with it. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, I say that's an appropriate verse because... uh, of what's going on this past year. Anyone here this morning, I don't want to show hands, but anyone feeling downcast, anyone feeling depressed, anyone who's been disappointed, anyone that's gone through some disturbing times? Well, seems like the time is right as we enter this new year for a sermon on hope. Would you say hope? Hope. That's our theme this morning. Let's face it, COVID-19 and rioting and looting in our streets and political division and government oppression of the church and right being called wrong and wrong being called right. And I could go on and on and on and on. These are things that should disturb us. Did you know that the average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years? Did you know that? That being true, America's living on borrowed time, isn't it? And the fact is, And I don't say this lightly, but America is a sick nation. America is a sick nation. Now, that's more than a claim. It can be backed up by the facts. Did you know that since 1960, there has been a 560% increase in violent crime here in America? 560% increase. Over a 400% increase in illegitimate births. A quadrupling of divorces. And boy, I've seen that up and close and personal with so many different people. There's been a tripling of um, children living in single-parent homes. Over a 200% increase in teenage suicide rate. A drop of 75 points in the average SIT scores of high school students. Something's very wrong, isn't it? You know, folks, we we have 6% of the world's population here in America, and we have 80% of the divorces. Something's wrong with a family here in America. We lead the world in murder, in rape, in violent crimes. And here's something to be proud of. 
80% of the whiskey consumed in the world is consumed by Americans. Isn't that wonderful? Not so much the so. We have become a nation where the criminal is deified and where the victim is vilified. A nation where the snail darter of all things has become more protected than the fetus in its mother's womb. We are a nation that is marked by moral regression, by sexual revolution, by spiritual rebellion. And if America dies, I guarantee you it won't be by homicide, it will be by suicide. See, America's biggest problems have nothing to do with inflation or interest rates or budget deficits or even crime. Our biggest problem in America today is sin. It's just that simple, sin. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And by the way, that's just America. Every day in my quiet time, I pray for the persecuted church around the world. I get from Open Doors Ministry every year a, a, a book that has uh, the, the church worldwide that is the most persecuted, and it gives the, most, um, the countries that persecute the church the most. Here are the top 10 in order, starting with number one, North Korea. Number two, Afghanistan, then Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, the Sudan, Yemen, Iran, and India. Is it any surprise? I know I'm dumping a lot on you, but is, is it any surprise that eight of the 10 countries where the persecution is the greatest against Christians are predominantly Muslim? I don't think that's a happenstance. And now in post-Christian Great Britain, and it is that, post-Christian Great Britain, nine of the largest cities, including London, now have Muslim mayors. As a matter of fact, the most popular name for baby boys born in England in 2019 was, anyone care to guess? Come on, the first, first service roared it out. What is it? Mohammed, that's right. And here in the United States, that was the ninth most popular name or baby boys. Again, in my quiet time, I've been studying the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a bit of a depressing book in many ways. He's known as the weeping prophet, prophet to Israel and to Judah. And, and, and one of the good things that we can rejoice in here this morning is the fact that according to Jeremiah, things were even worse back then than they are today. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 7 and verse 28, and he says, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. And then verses 11 and 12, peace, peace, they say. Are they ashamed? Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. <laughs> they don't even know how to blush. Sort of sounds like a description of another country, doesn't it? That we all know much better. Seemed like Jeremiah all the time was talking about the bad news. And, and, and you know, as preachers, if we're faithful to the word and faithful to our calling, uh, there's a lot of bad news that we have to point out to people. There's a lot of things we have to say that people don't want to hear. And one of the tragedies of the modern day church is there's so many preachers that are, are preaching to tickle people's ears instead of to tell them what they really need to hear. But Jeremiah... He wasn't one of those guys. Instead, Jeremiah, um, <laughs> a lot of what he talked about was bad news. He recognized that. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 20 and verse 8, he cried out, whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. <laughs> 
But then he turns the page. And in Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, I love this. God says through Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you, there's this word again, hope and the future. No wonder the psalmist comes back again in Psalm 42 and verse 11 and repeats, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. We are a people today in need of hope. Would you agree with that? A people in need of hope. But what does it mean to live in hope? And what's the ultimate fulfillment of hope? Well, there's three questions there that I want us to deal with this morning. And the first and most basic simply is, what is hope? Now, the reason we even need to talk about that is because in the English language, we use hope in a lot of different ways that don't, uh, don't comport with what the Bible talks about when it talks about hope. Sometimes we use the word hope as uh, simply uh, the desire for something good. Oh, I sure hope we get to go on vacation. Yeah, it's a good thing. Sometimes it's just wishful thinking. Oh, I hope I win the lottery and win a million dollars. Yeah, that'd be a good thing, all right. But the biblical use of the word hope has to do with the certainty of a promise fulfilled. Hear me now, the certainty of a promise fulfilled. Most of the ways in which we use hope in our society have to do with uncertainty, but not biblical hope. Biblical hope is, is not a desire for something good to happen. Biblical hope is not just wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that's built on the promise and the character of Almighty God. Romans 3 and verse 4 reminds us, let God be true and every human being a liar. God's word is always true. What God says, he will do. And knowing that God can speak only the truth, we can take him at his word. And... Uh, as a matter of fact, we can take him at his word confident that what he says will be fulfilled. Confident that if we are Christians, if we know Christ is our Lord and Savior, if we are abiding in him, we can move forward with confident expectation, the hope that what he has said, that he will do. Now, all that takes us back to Jeremiah Chapter 29 and verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Furthermore, Romans chapter 15 and verse 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. As a matter of fact, that's my prayer for you this morning. That same prayer of Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill all of you, all of us, with all joy and peace as you trust in him. All right, if that's the case, then that means being a Christian is a piece of cake, right? I mean, it's just a joy-filled life. It's a joyful experience. Good things happening all the time. Well, not so fast. If that's not the case, then second question, what does it mean to live in hope? John 16, Jesus is just a couple of days away from the cross. And he meets with his disciples in an upper room there in Jerusalem. And he says to his disciples that he's going away. As a matter of fact, he says, in a little while you will see me no more. And then he adds, then after a little while you will see me. Now we understand, but they really didn't. 
But we understand in context that he's speaking here about his death upon the cross, his burial in the tomb, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension of the Father, and ultimately his return and his reunion with his disciples in heaven. But then Jesus adds this, and please listen, get this, this is Jesus speaking, verse 33 of John 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. Oh, listen now, this is Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> it doesn't say you might. He says, you will have trouble. And then he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. Now for the apostles, they didn't understand it, but this would mean beatings, this would mean imprisonment, this would mean hardship, this would even mean death itself for many of the apostles. For us here this morning, it will mean uh, perhaps a whole different set of things, maybe cancer or heart attack or persecution or bankruptcy or the death of loved ones or rejection by your family for being a follower of Jesus, you name it. But there will be suffering, there will be trouble that will come. And yet, don't forget the last part of that verse. We need the last part of that verse, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus said. You can take him at his word. You know, I really think, and I don't have the time to get into this, but the church in America, it seems to me, is growing weaker and weaker and weaker. And part of the reason is because of political correctness and because of our lack of willingness to speak the truth for fear of offending somebody or driving somebody away. And furthermore, we have reduced our theology in America to what I call bumper sticker theology. You know, take heart, Jesus loves you. Well, you know, that's true, but there's more to it than that. Or don't worry, be happy. Yeah, oh, all right, all right. But again, there's more to it than that. No, for Jesus, it meant going to the cross. For Jesus, it meant beatings. It meant the crown of thorns. It meant nails in his hands and his feet. It meant the mockery of the crowd. And most significantly, it meant Jesus taking all the sin of all of mankind upon his sinless person and suffering even separation from God the Father on our behalf as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Jesus experienced in those moments, in those hours as he hung up on the cross, taking your place and taking my place? On the cross, Jesus got what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. Jesus lost his earthly peace so that you and I can have both earthly and heavenly peace. If you live for Christ in this present world, Jesus said you will have trouble. Uh, you'll have heartache. You may have suffering. Most of you, whether you recognize his name or not, have heard the story of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was an attorney in Chicago, Illinois, back in the 1800s. And in the great Chicago fire of 1871, he lost everything. And partially because of that, two years later, he sent his wife, Anna, and their four daughters across the Atlantic to England to stay with family there. Well, in mid-Atlantic, the ship on which they were sailing was struck by another ship, and their ship began to sink. And as it was sinking, Anna gathered her four daughters about her, and they held hands, and they prayed together. 
But then when the ship went under the water, you, I don't know the word for it, but it's like a huge vacuum that's created and they were torn apart and scattered and all four girls drowned. Anna herself was found floating unconscious in the debris by a rescue ship sometime later. The rescue ship took her on to England and from there he, she cabled her husband just two words. Two tragic words, saved alone. Well, Spafford booked passage on another ship to go to England and to be with his wife and to bring her back home. And uh, on the way there, he asked the captain of the ship to as closely as possible identify the place where the ship carrying his family had gone down. And when they got to that point, Spafford sat down and he wrote a hymn. Now, most of you sung this hymn at one time or another. I wish that we could have Guy Penrod sing it here this morning. He does a matter of fact, on your way home, take out your phone, put in um, um, his name or the Gaither's name and um, uh, this, this great song, It Is Well With My Soul. But he began to pin the words to that song. And I want you to listen to these words. Here's a Christian trying to deal with incredible grief. And listen to the words. I know you've sung the words before. Most of you have. But so many times, if you're like me, you sing the words without really thinking a lot about them. But listen carefully to these words. As Spafford wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this wonderful thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And then I love that last verse. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And then, of course, the chorus, it is well. With my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, here's my question for you. Why would a man seeking the peace of God in the midst of such incredible suffering spend that entire hymn focused on Christ and his work of salvation on the cross? And what does all this have to do with four little girls drowning in the midst of the Atlantic Ocean? Why sing of his sins that were nailed to the cross? Oh, I'll tell you, because that's where the hope is found. That's where the peace is found. We dare not miss that as Christians. That's what it's all about. It all goes back to the cross. And it all goes back to the Father saying, you know, I've lost a child too. I've lost a child too, but not involuntarily, voluntarily. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's where the peace comes from. The sufferings of this present world do not take away our hope. They only increase 
listen to me, they don't take away our hope, they only increase our anticipation for the fulfillment of that hope. <sighs> My wife Jan is here in this service as well, and the two of us have never experienced the loss of a child, and I trust we never will. But as a pastor, as you might imagine, I have, I've been with many parents who have lost a child. And honestly, I can't think of anything more painful. I just can't think of anything more painful than that. I want to show you a picture. This is Tommy Holman in this picture. Um, precious little boy, six years old. February the 1st, 2004, I was preaching at Kingsway that morning. And in the midst of the services, I learned from someone that six-year-old Tommy Holman had died overnight. And as soon as the last service was over, I didn't stick around to shake hands with anybody or to chat with anyone. I was out to the parking lot, out to my car, and on my way out to the Holman's house. And by the time I got there, there were many, many that had already gathered there, including many from our church family, What do you say to a couple that's lost their only child? After years of trying to have a child, now for their six-year-old son, precious little guy, what, what do you say? Well, I've been around long enough to have all the pet answers. I, I know the theology of sin and suffering and death. I, I know all of that, but let me tell you, that doesn't, that doesn't serve very well in moments like that. And the only thing I could do is to hug them and weep with them, pray with them. Mary and Sally were in the earlier service today, and I will tell you that the pain really never goes away. Tommy, he loved rockets. You see the rocket in the picture. Every year since his death, his daddy goes out on that anniversary and shoots off a rocket in honor of Tommy. And every year, Tommy's mom, Sally, she sends out a card and it always has another picture of Tommy in it along with a scripture. And one of the scriptures she's used that means the most to me is 1 Peter 1, 4 through 6. Listen to this incredible text where Peter speaks of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Boy, is that descriptive of what that family went through or not? Paul writes over in Romans 8 of how we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the, the redemption of our bodies, for in that hope, Paul says, we are saved. And then he adds this, I, I love this statement, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? That's true. If we had already experienced it, it wouldn't be hope at all. And I love the way Paul says it in Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where he says, we wait for that blessed hope. Say blessed hope with me. Blessed hope. We wait for that blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. So our third and final question, what's the ultimate fulfillment of our hope? Well, there's peace now, a peace the world doesn't understand. 
It's the peace that Spafford was able to experience because he knew the Lord. But what is this blessed hope that the Bible talks about? The Apostle John raises the same issue over in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, when he writes, Dear friends, now are we the children of God, and what we will be is yet to be made known. I, I, I love that. I told the folks in the first service, I wish you all could have known me when I first graduated from Bible college because I had all the answers, let me tell you. Whatever your question, I had the answers. I knew that. And now after 55, 56 years in ministry, I've got more questions than ever. Someday I'll get them answered. But right now, the Bible says these, these things are not yet made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him or we shall see him as he is. All the time, and I get it more and more, people ask what my, what my dispensational views are. Are you, are you amillennial? Are you premillennial? Are you, are you pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation? Hey, folks, I'm for the fact Jesus is coming again, and you need to be ready for it. That's what matters. That's what matters. Oh, <laughs> we will... What we will be is yet to be made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, that's the motivation for living the Christian life. Looking forward with anticipation of the return of Christ, we want to be more and more like Jesus. Now, we may not have all the answers, at least I don't have all the answers to the question. Pastor Craig may, but I don't. And, 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 and uh, we may not know all about it, but this much we know. John was given the revelation. And um, in Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. Now, I want you to understand that this wasn't an afterthought with God. This was something that God had planned down through the ages. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. But listen to what God said through Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 65, beginning with verse 17. Look, I'm creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation, and look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. His people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. That's the blessed hope, isn't it? The blessed hope of every child of God. Now, these are difficult days, but there's nothing more practical for sufferers than to have hope. And in Revelation, we have this blessed hope revealed a new world, a new Jerusalem in which all suffering is gone. Every tear is wiped from our eyes, every tear. And there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more night for that matter. 
Folks, it's important to remember that when these words were written, and John wrote them 90 AD to the end of that century, somewhere in there, when he wrote them, when he wrote to the people um, that were, who first read these words, uh, the people of God were suffering terrible, terrible things. It was written again near the end of the first century when the Roman emperor was Domitian, and Domitian hated Christians and Christianity and was determined to stamp out Christianity, and, and, and he was conducting this horrible persecution. Some believers were being sent into the arena where they were torn limb from limb by wild animals. And in my thinking, even worse, there were some Christians that were impaled upon poles, and then they were covered by pitch, and they were set afire. Burned alive, can you imagine? Such a horrible thing. And what did John offer them? Did he say, ha, ah, you're not gonna have any more trouble. Everything's gonna be fine. You're a Christian. Don't worry, be happy. No, he offered them a blessed hope, a living hope. And as a result, the more Christians Domitian killed, the greater growth Christianity experienced. Why? Because those who watched them die knew these Christians had something that they didn't have, this living hope. And hope in this new Jerusalem can never be snuffed out because it is a certainty based on God's honor and God's truth and God's actions, not on ours. What he has done, not what we have done. So let's close where we began why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Our world's in a mess. I don't think there's any denying that. And there are plenty of reasons to be discouraged. Uh, my wife and I have all but quit watching the news anymore, you know. It's just so depressing. But none of us here, none of you out there that are watching online, none of us are very likely to be torn limb from limb by wild animals in some arena. We're not even likely to be flogged and beaten for our faith. My longtime friends, Roger and Nancy Storms, Roger was a pastor, he's now retired, was a pastor of a, a great church out west, but they had a son, have a son for that matter, named Jeremy. Jeremy contracted AIDS just as a young boy. He did so because of a tainted blood transfusion that he received. Jeremy became a Christian as a young man and, and as a reality of death became a matter of when, not if. Several years before his death at 13 years of age, he, uh, he drew this picture that I want you to see, a picture of the glorified Christ because he realized that the blessed hope was found in the appearing of his great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and that rather than something to be feared for him as a Christian, death was that which would take him into the presence of Christ. His faith in Christ allowed him to face the trials of those final years of his life on earth with a peace that the world doesn't understand, let alone possess. Some of you today don't, don't, don't have that peace, don't have that living hope. Matter of fact, Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. He's talking to Christians that before their conversion, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Amen. 
Romans 5 and verse 5 tells us that that hope, that confident expectation does not disappoint. That's true. But Jesus also says in Revelation 22 and verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And then in verse 14, he said, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city, into the new Jerusalem. And then John adds in verse 17, the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the spirit and the bride, that's the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the spirit and the bride say, come, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever is thirsty. Whoever will may come and let him take of the free gift of the water of life. Jesus says he's coming soon. That's the blessed hope of every child of God. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not ready for the return of Christ, you're not ready for death itself, the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart today and says to you, don't delay. Delay no longer. Come and by faith receive the free gift of salvation. Paid for through the blood of Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you are a Christian today, be encouraged. <laughs> be encouraged. Put your hope in God. That's where the peace is found. That's where forgiveness is found. That's where new life is found. That's where eternal life is found. May you experience that in this new year. The peace of God in spite of sufferings, in spite of trials, in spite of opposition. The peace of God that comes through knowing Christ. But if you're not yet a Christian, you're not ready. You're not ready for death, not ready to meet the Lord. Then today, delay no longer. Put your faith in the Lord. As you have opportunity and you could do so here in the live service today, you can confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus said, he who believes shall be saved. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And today you can confess faith in Christ. Put your trust in him. I know arrangements can be made for your baptism into Christ as well, but don't delay any longer to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, please, please God, impress upon our hearts the importance of delaying no longer but finding in Jesus the peace and the hope which is found only in him. In his name I pray, amen and amen. Craig, come, won't you please share with us. Today, you may be in this room and maybe you're without hope at this point, but you're, you're looking up. Maybe you don't even know why you came today. Maybe somebody invited you or whatever, but now you know why. It's because God was reaching out to you. The Holy Spirit, like John preached, is saying, come. You may be online. You're watching from your car. You're watching from your home. And maybe you don't even know how you came across uh, this program to watch it today. But God knew what you needed to hear. And he's reaching out to you. And here's what I want to invite you to do is do what I've done, what John's done, what so many have done. And that's to invite him to come in, to transfer your sin onto him and to find freedom in God today. And I want to help you do that. So whether you're in this room or if you're online right now, will you just pray this prayer 
after me and just believe it in your heart. Just say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. Today I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Please wash away my past. Give me a new beginning. From this day forward, as much as I know how, I surrender my life to you. Thank you for accepting me as a child of God today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, somebody. Let's welcome those who prayed that prayer either here or online.